This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I appreciate this church so much. I think I, I often think of Cornerstone in Knoxville as uh, one of those model churches that is well-taught, uh, well-established, uh, led by godly, mature leadership, and uh, just a beautiful example of the body of Christ. And so it's always a great joy to be with you, and I, I, uh, I honor you, Bill, for your leadership as a leader of this congregation. I'm thankful for your leadership and for your friendship and for the opportunity to open God's Word. I want to talk to you about an Old Testament passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Uh, we'll look at this in a minute. Uh, and, and, and let me just begin with this introduction that by, you know, in trying to understand God's uh, uh, will for child rearing and how to raise kids, often people uh, look to the examples of Christian parents that we have in the Bible. And we look for examples of Christian parents who have uh, done this job well and who are good models of parenting well. And sadly, that search doesn't yield many uh, results because uh, some of the greatest saints in the Old Testament disappoint us uh, as parents. Think about Abraham's life and the ugly rivalry between his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. I mean, that rivalry still even uh, is existing to this day. Uh, and, and, of course, Isaac continued the pattern of poor parenting by overindulging his irreverent son Esau and leaving Jacob to be raised by the uh, conniving, devious uh, wife, Rebekah. And Jacob continued the pattern of poor parenting as he doted on Joseph, the son of his favorite wife, Rachel, and uh, left the sons of Leah to be uh, come wicked and irreverent men. And uh, you know, we could think of other examples. Aaron, whose sons Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire on the altar. Or, and this morning I want to look at you, uh, with you at Eli, the priest in Shiloh, who failed to restrain his sons, who allowed them to desecrate the sacrifices of God and abuse the people of God. And, and we think of we could think of other examples. Think of David, whose son Amnon uh, raped his half-sister, and the king didn't do anything in response. And Absalom, uh, who uh, sought to overthrow his father's kingdom. There's much family dysfunction in the Bible. And it's interesting, you know, if, if you read the Bible thinking, in the Bible I'm going to find this book of virtues and people who live virtuous lives and models about how I can be a person of virtue if I follow their examples, uh, that's not what we find in the Old Testament record. <clears throat> what we find repeatedly are flawed people. We, the Bible is shockingly honest about sin and depravity and even treachery uh, in the people of God. And in these Bible stories, we find people who failed uh, God, who, people who failed others. Because the story of the Bible is not a story of how human beings can, uh, through efforts of self-improvement, become acceptable before God. The story of the Bible is a story of grace. It's a story of the kind of grace we've been singing about this, this, this morning. 
that, that in spite of our sins, His mercy is more. Uh, that's the story of the Bible. It's a story of grace. It's a story of kindness of God. It's not a story of noble people rising to perfection. It's a story of failing people who experience grace and mercy that is undeserved. It's a story of mercy and grace even in the face of failing and, 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 uh, uh, on the part of humans. And yet some, in, in these stories of parenting failure, there are valuable lessons that we can learn. In fact, the stories are here for that purpose. The Apostle Paul gives us a, a, uh, a, a key to interpreting these Old Testament narratives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because he reminds us that, that uh, God uh, has put these stories here for our instruction. Uh, his, his, they're written as examples for us. We have them as warnings, he says, so that if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Uh, the, in the weakness and failures of the Old Testament saints, we see people like us who struggled with all the sins that are common to man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. And, and he reminds us that God is faithful one of the themes we've sung of this morning. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But with the temptation, he provides a way of escape so that we can, we can escape from it. So these stories are here to, to teach us powerful lessons, to teach us lessons of, of the, how the grace of God overcomes human sin and evil uh, for God's glory, how the God in mercy doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, how he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that he's a God of compassion, he remembers that we're dust, he's rich in mercy, and in spite of human failure, we see the mercy and grace of God in so many of these Old Testament narratives. So we can learn positive lesson from the negative examples of these patriarchs, and they will teach us about what we should do and what we should not do with our children. But they are also this canvas on which God paints beautiful pictures of unending grace and mercy to undeserved, undeserving people. And the, apostle, the apostle reminds us that God is faithful. His grace is made perfect in our weakness. We're not consigned to failure. God has provided us a way out so that even in our deepest hour of need. And so the, the hope that we have is not that we will somehow learn to live noble lives of virtue, but the hope that we have is that we have a God who is powerful, a God who is uh, who is endlessly uh, full of mercy and grace toward us and God who, who reminds us even in our successes and our failures that everything is from him, through him, and to him, and to him be glory forever. So we want to look at this story uh, about uh, e uh, Eli, and, and if you turn to, to, if you have your Bible and you want to look at chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, I'm not going to read the passage, but I will reference the passage, and you'll be able to follow the story along if you have your Bible in front of you. Uh, there's a story about the great artist Raphael, uh, who painted many of the frescoes that are found in the Vatican, and he was uh, working one day. A couple of the cardinals came along and were watching him paint, and one of the cardinals commented to the great painter, that he thought the face of the Apostle Paul was a little too red in his hue. And Raphael answered him, well, he's blushing uh, because he's embarrassed to see who is, who is uh, managing his, the, who's leading the church. 
Well, uh, you know, the author of 1 Samuel must have blushed over who was leading the people of God, because surely he would have been embarrassed by the condition of Israel. This was a bleak time for Israel. Uh, there were many reasons for embarrassment. This is the time of the judges, when people did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of spiritual apathy in the land. It was a time of limited prophetic activity. I remember when God speaks to young Samuel, uh, Samuel's not expecting to hear the voice of God. Eli even initially doesn't expect that Samuel has heard the voice of God. And we're told the reason for that in the passage, that prophecy was very rare in these days. And it, it was a dark time because Eli's sons were wicked men, and they were making a mockery of the worship of God. And, and as we will see, they were desecrating the sacrifices and abusing the people of God and uh, uh, as worshipers, and they had even turned the house of God into a brothel. And on top of all that, Eli, the high priest in Shiloh, had abdicated his leadership in many ways. Now, I think it's an amazing thing that we have been given these stories in such rich detail. I mean, we have quotes of conversations in these narratives. God has given these stories in such rich detail because they're written for our instruction. They're here to teach us lessons, and, and there are positive lessons that we can learn in dissecting these, even these negative examples. So I have four things for you in this passage this morning. I want to see the disregard of God on the part of the sons of Eli, uh, the complicity of Eli with their sin, uh, the condemnation of that sin by God because God does not overlook sin and wickedness. And then in contrast to all of that, uh, the, the raising up of Samuel and God's purpose to continue to bless his people and show his mercy to his people. So we'll begin the disregard of God on the part of the sons of Eli. They, these men displayed an appalling uh, disregard for God. Uh, verse two of or twelve, rather, of Second Samuel says, First uh, Samuel, two, verse twelve. I'll get this right. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Wicked men. Remember in Hannah's prayer. Uh, in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 2, she prays about the wicked, the mighty, the arrogant, those who contend with God. And, and you might think she was praying about the Philistines, and perhaps she was, but it could also be a description of the sons of Eli. They were wicked, arrogant men who, who contended with God. And we have several uh, uh, pictures of the wickedness of these men. They had, did not have any fear of the Lord. They, they had no knowledge of God. They, this is a shocking story. These men were priests of the Lord in Shiloh, and they were using the privileges of priesthood for personal gain. They were utterly corrupt, and they mocked God every day in the way that they carried on their priesthood. Uh, secondly, they, they dishonored the sacrifices and corrupted the sacrifices that were brought to them. The book of Leviticus made it very clear that the best portions of the sacrifice were to be offered to God. And, and uh, the, the lesser portions, uh, there would be a portion of that that would be given to the priests. Uh, and that was one of the ways that their families were provided for. But the law was very clear that the fat portions, the, the choice parts of the sacrifice belonged to God and, could be, and should be consumed as a sacrifice to the Lord on the altar. 
But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, short-circuited all of that, and they would take the chief portions before they could be offered. And so when the pots were being boiled, when the offering was being prepared to be brought to the, to the, uh, to, to the sacrifice, they would, he would send his servants in, they would demand the best portions, the portions uh, with a lot of fat on them, and the servant would take his three-pronged fork, and you'd stick his fork into the pot, and he would find the best portions and take them. And if the people that were offering the sacrifice objected, uh, their objection was put down, and they were even threatened with violence. Verse 16 says, if you either give it to me, or I will take it by force. And so it was, they were uh, disregarding the sacrifice of God. Verse 22 says that they even committed sexual immorality. They slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In Exodus 38, we, we speak of those who, uh, it speaks of the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And we know that the sons of Eli, uh, we know they used intimidation and threats to of violence against those offers who would not give them the fat portions that they desired or who objected to them taking the best meat. And we can only wonder whether they had used threats of violence and intimidation toward these women as well. We don't know. But think of the brazen regard or disregard of God involved in openly fornicating in the very precincts of the tent of meeting. Verse 24 says, in all of this, they caused the people of God to sin. The sins of these young men were shocking. Their behavior was morally repugnant to God. And many others who saw their behavior began to abhor the worship of God and the offerings and the sacrifices of the tent of, at the tent of meeting were degraded by the behavior of these men because there was no sense of holiness in them. There was no fear of God. There was no reverence of God in God's worship. And it's frightening to read of these men and their contempt for the worship of God. Now, can I pause for a moment of application? Because let us recognize that it's very easy for us to become familiar with the things of God. It's very easy for us to even come to worship as we have today on the Lord's Day without preparation of heart, without praying within ourselves, Lord, speak to me today, teach me your word, uh, inhabit our worship without treasuring God's worship and God's word. And I want to encourage you, we should, we should all be chastened by that because it's so easy for us to let the things of God become uh, uh, routine and even our worship routine and to fail to treasure the Word as we ought to treasure the Word, to fail to treasure Christian fellowship in the ways we ought to treasure it. And these things are excellent and beautiful. Don't allow them to become commonplace. Guard your soul against this danger because remember, Paul talks, uh, when he interprets these Old Testament passages, he talks about temptations that are common to man. And these things are things we too can fall into. And so there's a cautionary note. Don't allow yourself to just go through the motions. Guard your heart. Well, their disregard for God is obvious. The second thing I want for us to see in this passage is the complicity of Eli in their sin. Because here is where we confront parental failure. Chapter 3, God takes young Samuel into his confidence, and he says to Samuel that he knows the sins of Eli and the sins of their sons, and he knows how they made themselves contemptible, 
He knows that Eli did not restrain them and, uh, and that he has just sat on the sideline. He's become a spectator of what they were doing. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the family of Eli. And even when Eli did confront his sons occasionally, he did not follow through. It was all talk and no action. Uh, in fact, uh, verse 22 uh, talks about that, 22 to 25 talks about that. He says, I've heard a report about you, boys. I've, I've been hearing some stories about you, boys, and it's not a very good report I'm hearing. But his sons ignore him. The text says they did not listen to their father's rebuke. So what we have here is a father who is passive. Even when he rebukes his sons, he fails to follow through. And the sons have long since learned to ignore their father. And at the end of the day, he does nothing. They continue in their role as priests in Shiloh. They should have been thrown out of the priesthood. In terms of Old Testament law, they should have been stoned for their uh, wickedness. But Eli makes this weak rebuke and it comes to nothing and they continue as they had until God removes them. And when we look, if you look at verses 27 to 29, a man comes to, uh, from God to prophesy against Eli, and he reminds Eli of God's mercy to Eli and to his family. And God says to Eli, why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you honor your sons more than you honor me? And notice what he says. It's very interesting. He says, you are fattening yourselves, plural, on the choice parts of every offering. God includes Eli in the rebuke. You're fattening yourselves. Now earlier, the, the, the text told us that Hophni and Phinehas were uh, finding the best portions of the sacrifice and taking the best meat before it could be offered. They were taking the real juicy parts with all the fat on them and, and apparently they would get home and Eli would say, hey, give me a piece of that nice juicy meat. You see, Eli was complicit with them. He was also enjoying the meat that had been stolen from the worshipers. What failure as a father. No wonder his sons ignored his rebuke. He was a compromised man. Can I make another note of application? <laughs> There's a warning here for fathers and mothers. When we are willing to compromise, when we are complicit and the things that our children say and do that are wrong. When we fail to correct and fail to follow through with correction, we become complicit in what they do. And when we are complicit in the things that they do, they will not hear us. We, and that's what we have here. Uh, because, see, when we've overlooked wrong and only make weak attempts to correct it, we lose our moral authority as parents. We become complicit. In chapter 4, uh, verse 21, there's this story of the Ark of the Covenant being taken by the Philistines. It was a low point in Israel's history. And the Philistines are in a panic over the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. And I think they did not panic because they were so spiritual and understood the significance of this symbol of God's covenant with them. But they panicked because they saw the ark almost as a good luck charm. And in this battle, the ark was lost. And the, the, it was really when God brought his judgment to Eli and to his sons, because his sons were killed in the battle. And you might remember a young man comes into the 
city and he tells of the loss of the ark and he reports of Israel's loss, uh, that Israel's lost the battle and that the sons of uh, Hophni and Phinehas are dead and Eli falls back on his chair and, and breaks his neck in the fall because his body was so heavy. He was fat around the waist because he had been eating the fat of the sacrifices that should have been offered to God. And he died with a broken heart and with a broken neck. And you know, of course, what his daughter-in-law said. She was having a baby at the very same time. She died in the childbirth, but when she named her son, she named him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Why does God judge, God's judgment come to Eli at the same time it comes to his sons? It comes because he's complicit with them. Eli was a prodigal father. Now we could ask ourselves, why does this happen? How does this happen? How, how could this happen to the high priest in Israel? How could this, this man who was a servant of God fail in these ways? And we, we can, I can suggest some answers to that question Perhaps he was, Eli was careless in his inattention to his sons. You know, it's interesting, if you read the text very carefully, you notice that Eli's knowledge of his son's wickedness came to him secondhand. I've heard a report about you. He heard about what his sons were doing in Israel, and, and, and he says, uh, I hear this report, it's not a good report. Eli did not have personal uh, knowledge about, full knowledge about what was going on with his sons. It's like a teacher reporting to your, your child's failing math and you were clueless about it or the police saying your, your child is, is in trouble. Uh, that's what was going on with Eli. He needed to be informed in order to know what was going on with his sons. So his knowledge of his son's wickedness was secondhand knowledge. Why did he need to be told? Why was he not more attentive why was he not observing his sons himself? Why did others know more about their behavior than he knew? He was their father. Maybe he was distracted by his duties. Maybe he was too busy. Maybe he was too passive to take note and do anything with it. But, but it seems that even when he was present, he was absent. A lot of fathers are like that. They're present but they're not observing. They're not seeing what's going on. They're not noticing. There's carelessness here on the part of Eli. He didn't give his sons the attention they needed. He didn't give them the oversight that they required. That's why they dismissed him and ignored him and didn't obey him. Can I make another point of application here? There's, it's a challenge for us parents because often parents give their children everything but themselves. Do you know what your kids want? Your kids want you. They want your time. They want your attention. They want your ear. They want you to be excited about the things that excite them. They they want you to be present. They want the love of their parents. And you can't buy that with trinkets or with toys. 
we need to be present in our children's lives. We can't just make it up on weekends. We can't just make it up with strategic vacations. Just, and just being at home is not enough because you can be present and yet still be absent. We need to be present in our children's lives. We need to be engaged and connected and listening and hearing and watching and observing. And one of the points that's a takeaway in this passage is that absence, disinterest, indifference to your children is deadly. I often hear families talk about having quality time with their children. You know, it's more important to have quality time, they will say, than quantity time. Uh, we, we, I, I try to have quality time. And uh, so that's the idea. You don't need to have large quantities of time with your kids. You just need to have quality time. Do you know the problem with that idea? Quality time is not something you can have on demand. You can't say to your kids, hey, I've got, uh, I got an hour. Let's have some quality time to each other. Let's just get deep, bear your soul. Let's really talk. Uh, I, come on, I mean, I've only got 55 minutes left. Let's go. <laughs> quality time takes place in the midst of quantity time. It's when you're spending time with your kids. You're, you're spending time with them. You're playing board games together. You're, you're, you're enjoying one another's company. You're, you're with them. You're talking to them. You're interacting with them. And, and in, in the midst of that quantity time, you have those golden moments of quality time, those precious moments that can't be scheduled. They just happen. And you have a sense, even as you're interacting with your child, you realize, wow, this is a golden moment. This is very precious. This is special. This child is is speaking from his heart to me. And it's a precious moment. And you realize, I could not have scheduled that. I could not have planned it. I could not have orchestrated it and made it happen. But it happened in the context of spending time. And the more quantity time you spend with your kids, the more quality times you'll have. There'll be those precious moments in which something wonderful happens and a bond is built in the family, and, and the family's built up and blessed by it. You get the picture. Eli was an ineffective leader in his home. Maybe he mistook uh, leniency for love. Maybe he thought that discipline was unnecessary. Obviously, uh, in the story, by the time this story's, uh, the, the part of the story we're reading, these men are already adults, but what we're reading about is the fruit of negligence and in parenting throughout their entire life. And, and it's what has been going on. The second answer perhaps to this question, how did it happen? We could think of, of the hypocrisy of Eli. You know, in chapter 2, verse 12, we read that Eli's sons were wicked men. They were sons of Belial. Belial was a, a, a pagan deity. And we've seen that they're wicked and worthless men. But do you remember the story of Hannah in chapter 1? In chapter 1, Hannah's praying in her heart to the Lord. Her lips are moving. There's no sound heard. Eli, observing this, accuses her of being drunk. And she says in her defense, I'm not drunk. I'm deeply troubled. I'm pouring out my soul to God. Don't take me for a daughter of Belial. Don't take me for a wicked woman. It's the same word that is used in chapter 2, verse 12, to describe Eli's sons. So we have Eli, 
hypocritically standing in judgment of this woman who's pouring out her heart to God. He calls her a daughter of Belial when the sons of Belial are actually in his own home. Eli's not in a good place. He's hypocritical. He's, he, he lacks spiritual discernment. There's something wrong when you see the sins in others before you see the sins in yourself, when you see the, the problems in other people's family and you fail to see the problems in your family and your own needs. Another possible answer to this question, how does this happen? Uh, we're told that, that uh, Eli was, uh, his eyes were growing dim. And it's interesting, some of the commentators have commented on this, that, that there's a connection between Eli being spiritually dull and his eyes growing dim. And you have spiritual darkness in the land because you have spiritual darkness in the high priest. It's not just that his eyes were dim, but his whole spiritual vision was dim. Now, the sons of Eli, of course, are responsible for their choices. They were wicked men. Uh, but Eli should have been a better father. He was a prodigal dad. And we're dealing here with a, a dad whose walk with God was not what it should have been. And we see the fruits of that in the lives of his son. We have a father for whom God, God was not as real as he should have been. And one of the important takeaways from this passage is the realization is that our children need to see spiritual reality in us. We need to model for them. If we're going to talk about the truth, we need to live the truth. If we're going to talk about the way, we need to walk in the way. That's why Deuteronomy 6 says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And these words I teach you today are to be upon your hearts so that you can impress them on your children and talk about them when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. You see, as parents, we've got to love God with our whole hearts if we're going to bring God to our kids. Your love for God your delight in God, your passion for God, your sense of joy in God and all that he is for you in Christ is foundational for every time you talk to your kids about God. Your love and your passion, your joy, your sense of, of gratitude and delight in God, your longing for holiness, your, your, your sense of wonder at the kindness and grace of God all provide the foundation for your spiritual connection with your kids. Well, we see the condemnation of God on Eli. He, this man comes from God and he pronounces judgment. In chapter 2, 27 to 36, he reminds Eli that God had given Eli and his family this opportunity to serve before him, that he had chosen them to be priests. He had chosen them to make offerings before the Lord. And he asks this penetrating question. He says, why did you honor your sons more than you honored me? Why have you scorned my sacrifices and offerings? And he's saying, look, look what I have done for your family and look at how you have responded. And God's, God brings judgment. He says, I promised you that your sons would serve me but now that's not going to be the case. And as he's penetrating words of judgment, he says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will disdain. So God says, I'm going to tear your house limb from limb, and I'm going to cut off your strength. There won't be an old man in your family line. Your, your, 
sons are going to fill your eyes with tears and your heart with grief, and they're going to die young. And of course, that's what's happened. And this story is a vivid picture of the sowing and reaping principle of the Scripture. If we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. But I want you to see a wonderful contrast that there is in this passage, because I, I have two objectives really in this sermon. I want for us to learn the lessons that are here for us, and the apostle is, is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things are written for our instruction. We're to draw lessons from them. We're to avoid the sins that our fathers have fallen into and, and find God in our times of temptation and weakness. I mean, that's the lessons that we're to draw, and Paul makes that very clear, and we should pull away these positive lessons. But one of my goals is, is also for us just to think, how can I be careful where Eli was careless? How can I be more attentive to my children? How can I be a better example of the love of God? How can I, how can I be an example of courage and boldness to confront sin? How can I be a, an example of grace and confidence in God? But I also want us to see the wonderful work of God that is at work in this passage and is at work even in times of failure, even in dark times. Because in this story, there are little, little points of light woven all through the story. And we see that God is at work. And there's a contrast here between this very dark and discouraging story. I mean, we, we see the failure of a father we see the disastrous consequences for his sons and, and for Israel. But there's a bright ray of hope in this passage that I don't want us to miss. Because woven through this story are these little rays of hope. For example, right after the description of the sons of Eli and how they desecrated the sacrifices of God and took meat that they shouldn't have taken, we read in verse 18, but Samuel is ministering before the Lord. So in contrast to these wicked men and their corrupt priesthood, we have the faithfulness of this young lad who's lighting the candles in the temple at night and putting them out in the morning and who's caring for the needs of the prophet, the high priest. And verse 11 tells us that Samuel is ministering before Eli the priest. And there's a note again in verse 26, after, after Eli had rebuked his sons and they had ignored him, we have this little ray of hope, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with God and man. So all the while, while Israel's growing more and more dark, Samuel's growing, Samuel's developing, Samuel's knowing God, Samuel's being raised up by God as the person who will lead Israel because God is not going to leave his people without a leader. And even though Eli must be removed, God is already at work. And even in the midst of the darkness of the story, God is at work. So Samuel's growing in favor with God as he ministers with integrity. Eli's sons are experiencing disfavor with God because of their wickedness. And, and what God is telling us by weaving these, these references to Samuel throughout this narrative is that, that there is always hope. This is how God works. Even in the darkest times, even the times when it seems like wickedness abounds, God is still at work. There's a new story being written. Even as this dark story is, is unfolding and coming to its 
terrible conclusion. There's a new story being written. It's a story of, of the faithfulness of God. It's the story of God's answers to the prayer of a broken-hearted woman who weeps before the, the God in the tabernacle. It's a story of a young boy ministering faithfully before the Lord. It's a story of a young man growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Do you see what God is doing? God is already at work. He's preparing new leadership. God always does that. God has his remnant. God always has his answer. In the midst of the darkness of this passage, the passage is whispering to us, don't forget Samuel. You see that little boy serving in the temple whose mother gave him to God in response to God's answer to her brokenhearted prayers. Do you see, do you see this young man who's growing up? Do you see this one ministering before the Lord? God's whispering to us in this passage, there's hope. I'm not done. I'm not done with my people. I'm not done with my work. The failure of this man and his sons is not the end of what I'm going to do with Israel. They are the people of God, and I'm preparing for them. I'm going, to, I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to encourage them. And I'm raising up a man who will serve God faithfully, even in this dark hour. You know, that's true in our lives. That's true in our lives every day. That's true in the life of the church of Christ. That's true in the life of the church of Christ in America right now in these very confusing perplexing times, we always have cause for hope because God is always raising up Samuels. And, and he's, he's doing that here today. He's, he's looking for Samuels this morning who will say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I'm here. I want to know you. I want to serve you. God is raising up faithful people even in the brokenness. You look at this story and you see all the neediness. But God is at work. God brought an end to Samuel, or excuse me, to Eli and his family. None of his descendants had the opportunity to serve as priests. The glory of the Lord had departed from that family. There was a famous uh, preacher in the 19th century, D.L. Moody, who said, do you want to see a man's impact? Don't just look at his children, look at his grandchildren. Now, I know that Christianity doesn't run in the bloodlines. I've talked a lot about that this weekend, and that we are not going to save our kids through our, our good works. But scriptures often speak of God's favor, even on our children's children. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to see the blessings of God follow one generation after another. We want to see one generation following the previous generation in God's ways. That's what I pray for. That's what I pray for with my children, my grandchildren. Our first prayers every morning together, Margie and I pray for our kids and our grandkids. Someone told a story of a little boy who was uh, climbing a mountain with his father, and the trail of the climb got steeper and steeper the more they ascended. And it grew more and more dangerous, and, and the father was ahead of the boy, picking his way very carefully and choosing carefully the places where he would put his feet. And his son shouted out to him, choose well, Daddy, I'm coming right behind you. And that's what we want to do. We want to choose our way well. 
so that our children can follow the path that we've laid out. We want to be faithful in our generation. And this story here is here to warn us with Eli's failures and to encourage us to follow God and be faithful. As I look at this story of Eli, though, I have to say to you, I see, I see me. I see the times when I've failed to speak, when I should have spoken, either out of cowardice or laziness. I, I see the times when I have gone through the motions without my heart truly being engaged as it ought to be. I look at this story and I see, I see ways that I can identify with Eli's failure. And my hope this morning is that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who was made flesh like our flesh, who came into our world, this broken world, and who lived in this broken world as a man without sin. Don't ever let yourself say, oh, it was easy for him. He was God. He couldn't say. I don't need divine righteousness. I need human righteousness. It was human righteousness that Christ fulfilled in his obedience to the Father, always doing the Father's will, because the Spirit was given to him without measure. And he fulfilled all righteousness so that I could be righteous. He died as a sacrifice for my sins so that the guilt of my sins that deserved the wrath of God that fell on Eli would fall on him rather than on me. And he, uh, he, he lives right now. Do you know what he's doing? He's praying for you and me. He's praying for us, interceding for us, that we would know God, walk with God, and love God, that we'd be the fathers and mothers who, who pick carefully the path for our kids that our kids can follow. So our hope is not just to leave here with new resolution and new determination to do better, but our hope is in this great God and in his unending grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us these stories that our flesh and blood people like us who lived in our world, and uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can draw lessons from them, that you've given us these things for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we pray that you would help us to learn the lessons from Eli. And we pray that we would hope in God and follow God and love God and pursue God and delight ourselves in the fatness of knowing God. And we pray that we would see one generation in this church, in every true church, following one another in the ways of God. We pray this for Christ's great glory. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.